Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. Serving the community for over 75 years, Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, who is studying a new surgical technique that allows surgeons to make repairs to the heart without having to open the chest cavity and while the heart is beating. Info at PinnacleHealth.org. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. The Tet Offensive is generally considered the turning point of the Vietnam War. North Vietnamese troops and Viet Cong guerrillas staged coordinated attacks in dozens of cities and other places in South Vietnam. The surprise raids occurred in late January of 1968, on the eve of the Lunar New Year, the most sacred holiday in Vietnam. South Vietnam's capital, Saigon, was attacked and got most of the attention at the time, but fighting was most intense in the city of Hue, about 50 miles south of the north-south border. Our guest today has written about that prolonged battle in his new book, Hue 1968. Mark Bowden joins us. Mr. Bowden, welcome to the program. Thank you, Scott. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Before we get into the book, just want to kind of set up uh, why you wrote the book. I understand that this is a book that you really didn't want to write. Why is that? Well, I had written a book about a battle, um, about uh, the Battle of Mogadishu called Black Hawk Down, and, and it was such a big success that I kind of felt trying to write another book about a battle was maybe not a good idea. But, uh, you know, the idea kind of grew on me and eventually took hold. So what did change? Why did the story of Way needed to be told? Well, you know, I, the more I thought about, uh, you know, writing about Vietnam in particular, uh, it was obviously, a, you know, I'm 66 years old, so, you know, I was in high school when this happened, and it was a big issue in my house and a, and a contentious one between my father and I. Uh, and I realized that for nearly everyone in my age group, Vietnam had touched our lives in a big way, one way or another. Um, so, you know, I had never had the opportunity to really explore um, what happened in Vietnam. And for me, the, you know, the way that I do these things is not to write sweeping accounts of the whole war. I'm much more interested in focusing on a on a key moment and really digging deep into it. So the idea grew on me, and it was my opportunity to really kind of explore for myself what happened in Vietnam and how I felt about it. So let's go to Hue in 1968 and Vietnam overall. As I mentioned in the introduction, Tet is the most sacred holiday in Vietnam, and there usually is a ceasefire at that time at uh, Tet. Uh, Set the scene for us. What was going on behind the scenes just before Tet? Well, the United States had intervened really heavily in Vietnam um, and, and actually begun sending our own troops into combat in 1965. And over those three years, uh, they had done a pretty good job of of sort of stopping the spread of of the Viet Cong and the and North Vietnamese. It kind of stopped their progress in South Vietnam, but they um, they they were nowhere near defeating them. So the war had kind of devolved into a stalemate. And it was not, as it happened, you know, proving to be the easy war that President Johnson and uh, and General William Westmoreland had sold to the American people. So there was, you know, public opposition was growing to the war. In North Vietnam, you know, they saw an opportunity to uh, launch strikes on all of the major cities in South Vietnam. And what they hoped would happen was that the people of South Vietnam would rise up in their support, and they could end the war in one fell swoop. Um, and that, of course, didn't happen, but that was, the, that was the setting in which this battle took place. 
You mentioned uh, General William Westmoreland, who was the commander in Vietnam at the time. In fact, uh, just before Tet, he had said something to the effect that the end was in sight, there was light at the end of the tunnel, that uh, this would not be a prolonged war. And really, behind the scenes, I guess even maybe even publicly, you can tell me whether he did this or not, uh, didn't have a whole lot of respect for the North Vietnamese Army or Viet Cong, didn't think that they could uh, do a mass attack like what they did at Tet. Uh, so, you know, describe what Westmoreland was telling the American people and President Johnson at the time. Well, General Westmoreland was someone who uh, was very good at kind of taking a complex situation and boiling it down to talking points and, and selling points, really. And, you know, he convinced President Johnson, and I think, frankly, he convinced himself that the United States, you know, had the upper hand and was on, on its way to crushing uh, the communist movement in South Vietnam. And so I think he was so convinced of his theory of events that when things began happening that contradicted it, his first inclination was to deny that these things had even happened. Uh, so he came back to the United States uh, just about a month and a half before the Tet Offensive to do a sort of a public relations blitz to try to rally the American people behind the war effort. And then his main message was, you should get behind this effort because we're winning and we're almost done, and we'll begin bringing troops home within the year. Uh, little did he know that, uh, that the Tet Offensive was going to get in his way. So before we get into the battle itself, uh, the way the city of Tet is laid out and its history uh, is one of the, the, the aspects of this that makes it unique. Describe the city of Hue. Well, Hue is the um, ancient capital of the United Vietnam that was where the emperor had his palace. The northern half of the city is actually an enormous fortress with walls like 30 feet high and 30 feet thick. Uh, with only nine entrances and exits. And within that fortress called the Citadel, there's a, a um, the Imperial Palace, which is sort of a fort within a fort. That's the northern half of the city. The southern half of the city, which is separated from the Citadel by the Huang River, which the Americans call the Perfume River, um, is the modern part of Hawaii. And that's where the government buildings were and the hospital and the prison and a lot of you know businesses. And it was a bustling and, and more modern section. So about half of the city lived in the Citadel, and another half lived in this more modern city south of the Huang River. The battle opens on January 31st, 1968. Just after midnight their time, a band of Viet Cong raiders blew up a power installation and attacked two police stations in Saigon. Other small bands still roam the city. The Viet Cong are reported to be in complete control of a militant Buddhist headquarters less than a mile from the center of town. At Hue, the old imperial capital, 400 miles to the north, the Viet Cong is holding on to part of the town, as well as half the city of Kontum in the central highlands. Along the northern coastline, Nha Trang and Quinan have come under fresh mortar fire. And earlier today, South Vietnamese President Thu declared martial law. That's NBC's Frank McGee announcing on January 31st, 1968, uh, the beginning of the Tet Offensive. So we got to hear what we heard here in the United States. The battle opens on January 31st. Talk about the opening salvos, if you will, of, uh, of the Battle of Hue. Well, what was most remarkable about the Tet Offensive as a whole was the scope of the um, enemy attacks. Uh, they had just about every city and town in South Vietnam. Most of the American press was located in Saigon, and so a lot of the initial attention um, to the Tet Offensive was focused on the attacks in Saigon, which were mostly abortive. There were real problems. The enemy troops had miscalculated, and they got their timing off, and their, their attacks on Saigon were really just uh, small groups of of uh, small cadres of men who ended up, you know, fighting to the death. Uh, in Hue, however, uh, there were about 10,000 enemy forces who basically just walked into the city and took it uh, on that evening over a period of several hours, so that by morning of, of January 31st, uh, there were only two small compounds in the city, one an American one in the southern half and one a, a South Vietnamese army post in the northern half, that weren't occupied by the enemy. And this was a total surprise, wasn't it? 
it was a complete surprise, and it is probably ranks as one of the biggest intelligence failures in the history of the United States military. I don't know, even just you know, speaking of Hue itself, how you can amass 10,000 troops outside of the third largest city in South Vietnam over a period of months without anyone sounding an alarm is a fairly remarkable accomplishment. And I think the uh, North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong deserve credit. Was that partly because uh, of this lack of respect for the opposition, the enemy? It was partly that. I think there was a great deal of arrogance uh, in the American command. And, and I also think it reflects the degree of popular support that the revolutionary movement had, particularly in the rural areas around the city. Because if, you know, someone in any of those villages had chosen to, they could have sounded an alarm, you know, well before this attack took place, and it never happened. But at the same time, as you mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, one of the objectives of the Tet Offensive was to bring South Vietnamese over to the side of the revolutionaries. But that didn't happen for the most part, did it? No, it didn't. And it reflects, uh, you know, the misunderstanding and miscalculation in Hanoi, which is, of course, the capital of North Vietnam. And just as the United States underestimated the enemy and, and had, a, a, um, I think, a, a flawed notion of how, how well the war was going, in Hanoi they had their own misconceptions, and they believed that the people of South Vietnam were much more supportive, particularly in the big cities, um, and they felt, felt like all they had to do was really strike a match, and the whole southern part of Vietnam would rise up in, in support. And in, tr- in truth, uh, they did have widespread support in the rural areas, but in the cities, not so much. So as you mentioned, on January 31st, the North uh, you know, had these uh, thousands of troops, even though it was first at first reported hundreds of, uh, of, of troops there, uh, and the fighting began. Marines started battling back, and they're reporting heavy fighting and many enemy troops, but the commanders don't believe it. Why not? Again, I think it, it goes back to arrogance, uh, to the disbelief that the enemy was capable of moving that many troops into Hue. Uh, and so they discounted some of the initial reports from the men in the field as being panicked or young soldiers who had never really faced combat before. So they were, you know, intimidated. And so instead of sending, uh, or at least halting, fighting until they could supply their men or, or reinforce them sufficiently, they kept hurling them against this superior force uh, that was well entrenched. And, and many Americans were killed because of that. And I'm going to talk about that in just a moment, because uh, what you're describing was actually block by block, house by house fighting, urban fighting that the Marines really hadn't been trained for and hadn't experienced a whole lot in Vietnam. But before we do that, there's a city called Quezon, and Westmoreland had this obsession with Quezon. Tell us about that. Well, Quezon wasn't a city. It was actually a little marine outpost in the Central Highlands, very near the Laotian border. And General Westmoreland was convinced that the enemy was planning to overrun this, this marine base in Quezon. And he focused all of his attention and effort uh, on trying to protect this marine base. Uh, and it turned into, you know, a very long, a, sort of a prolonged standoff and a, and a big attack actually never even came there. When I was in Hanoi, you know, I talked to their uh, veterans, and many of them told me that, uh, you know, for them, Quezon had been a feint all along, that they were they had designed a an attack on Quezon to lure General Westmoreland's troops out into the hills uh, instead of stay, staying near the urban centers, which is, of course, where the big attack actually came. And and even once the fighting had begun in uh, in Hue, Westmoreland still was convinced, and he had Johnson convinced that the big attack was going to come at Quezon, right? That's right. You know, and I think part of it was his disbelief that the enemy had moved into Hue in such large numbers, and part of it was he was simply like a lot of people who are you know theorists. He was wedded to his own theory of what was going to happen. And he serves as kind of a, um, I think, sort of a, a warning uh, to people who develop theories about the world that uh, 
the world is a little bit more complicated than uh, they might think. Hmm. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health Spine Institute, offering a complete range of services to diagnose and treat your spine condition. More information is available at pinnaclehealth.org spine. Welcome back to Smart Talk. Our guest today is Mark Bowden, who is the uh, author of uh, Huey 1968. It's his latest book. You probably recognize Mark Bowden from his time as a reporter for the Philadelphia Inquirer and also his best-selling book that became a great film as well, Black Hawk Down. And I should mention Mark Bowden will be at the Midtown Scholar Bookstore in Harrisburg, Midtown Scholar Bookstore in Harrisburg, this Saturday from 4 to 6, talking about Huey 1968. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call 1-800-729-7532 send an email to smarttalk at witf.org you can leave a question or a comment on witf's facebook page on twitter we are at smarttalk witf again that's 1-800-729-7532 so going back to uh, way and the block to block fighting at the time uh, as you as you write in the book marines had not been trained for this for the most part and when you think when many of us think about uh, fighting in vietnam it almost always was in a rural area or a jungle very little urban fighting until the end when you know saigon came under attack but uh, they were not trained for this were they no they weren't and it really is a different kind of fighting i think in the field uh, generally what they encountered were small bands of enemy forces who would often melt away uh, when they were discovered, and so you had a lot of kind of flashpoints, but very few major battles. Uh, in way, you have a, uh, a terrain where the enemy is basically shooting at you from all directions, and because of all the large buildings and concrete uh, sound echoed all over, you could never quite tell where you were being attacked from. And, of course, anywhere you moved, uh, you were a target inside of way. So it was a... It was an experience that the Marines hadn't had since the Korean War when they fought in Seoul. So there were no, there were very few Marines, let's put it that way, in Vietnam who had any memory of fighting in a city. When you just said that uh, the Marines, whenever they moved, they would be shot at, the book does just a fantastic uh, job of describing that literally, that, I mean, these Marines were scared out of their wits because they didn't know where the enemy was at first. Uh, and you're right, whenever they would move, they would be shot at or, uh, you know, the, the, they were in danger the entire time. I mean, your book leaves the reader on edge, uh, right on the edge of your seat constantly, like, constantly, constantly, if I could use a cliche, because you never know when the next shot is going to come. That's right. You know, and that, that was a, a terrifying world to be fighting in, and it's just an unbelievable uh, tribute to the courage of those men that they kept going every day, even as they were being shot to pieces. Most of the men that I interviewed who fought in the way um, fought up until a certain point and were carried off in the battlefield. A uh, thousand or more were wounded, and, and uh, 200, 250 were killed. Um, so it wasn't at all unusual that I'd be interviewing someone and they'd be telling me about their experiences, and then all of a sudden they'd say, and that was it for me. I was out on the next helicopter. Mm. But one of the most unique aspects of your book that I found anyway is that uh, this is nonfiction. These are real people you're talking about, so it's wrong to call them characters. But as you're reading the book and you introduce us to so many people, you describe their backgrounds, these are people that we probably all can relate to back here in the States, that you get to like them as characters, and they end up getting shot or they end up getting killed. Yeah, and of course that's the nature of combat, and it's why it's so terrifying and, and terrible. And I think, you know, my goal as a writer is to immerse the reader in the experience so that you really understand what the people who fought in way went through. And both, you know, from the American side and the Vietnamese side, one of the things that I was proudest of in the book is the reporting in Vietnam itself. I do think it's the first 
uh, book of this kind that tells the story of a battle in Vietnam through the eyes of both the Americans and the Vietnamese. Talk about the the North Vietnamese, the Viet Cong that uh, you did talk to, the former members of the army or or the guerrilla outfit. Uh, how did they see the Battle of Hue? Well, they of course they vary because you had everything from you know JT Mung, an eighteen year old village girl who had joined the Viet Cong after her older sister was killed, uh, to veteran North Vietnam North Vietnamese Army soldiers who were, you know, doing their duty, uh, for the most part, you know, they were fighting for the independence of their country, and they tended to see the United States as just the latest foreign invader. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of the younger, more idealistic fighters believed the propaganda that this would be the final battle of the war, and that the people in the city of Hue would rise up in support of their efforts. And so they were, you know, deeply disillusioned and discouraged when that didn't happen, and then when the um, American and, and South Vietnamese counterattack began pummeling. So, if you would provide us a, a brief description of how the battle itself transpired as far as fighting block to block, fighting house to house. I mean, when, when it was being reported at the time back here in the United States in the media, uh, which, by the way, you, you talk about a lot of how it is uh, being uh, covered uh, back by the American media, but... You know, they, we're talking about a, a half block per day, maybe a block per day if we're, if we're lucky, and that only came at the end. I mean, this is just hard to believe, the courage of these Marines and what they had to go through to fight for as much as they did. Yeah, you know, I don't think it's possible for reporters on the scene to really fully understand the scope of what they're writing about or, or the pattern of the battle. But, you know, I have the advantage of looking back on it from almost 50 years and really what the Battle of Hawaii was was three separate battles. There was the effort to take back the southern part of the city, the modern part of the city, which, as you described, was basically moving block to block, house to house, until they fought their way through the, uh, you know, the, the center of uh, southern Hawaii. And then after that concluded, uh, they had to go fight inside that old fortress, which was, if anything, even more horrifying, because, I mean, just to look at it is pretty daunting when you see this big fortress. It looks like something out of medieval times. Uh, but they were, you know, fighting in, in a situation there where the enemy was up on the walls overhead and shooting down at them and in buildings inside of the Citadel. And that was a particularly horrific fight that lasted for another week or two. And then there was a third battle that was fought in the countryside northwest of the city where the army, where the 1st Cavalry Unit fought its way down in order to try to cut off the supply lines and the uh, uh, avenues of retreat for the enemy. And those were, those were some major battles, and the Americans took a lot of casualties there as well. The United States had uh, a real advantage in air power. Why was there no air support or artillery? I mean, there was some artillery, but that didn't come until uh, later, and it was only used sparingly. Yeah, it was, it was actually used intensely at the end of the battle. Um, initially, part of the problem with using artillery is that the fighting was close in, in a city, so it was difficult to figure out where your troops were and where the enemy troops were. And in most cases, they were sometimes just across the street from each other. So it was very difficult to use heavy artillery without killing your own men. There was also concern, particularly in the beginning of the battle, for destroying a lot of the historical treasures. As I mentioned, they is the ancient capital of Vietnam, and there are a lot of pagodas and, and historical buildings. And it, at least in the beginning, and I think this reflected some of the arrogance and disbelief, since you know, the American forces didn't believe that the enemy was there in such great numbers, uh, they, they probably felt they didn't need heavy artillery as much in the beginning, and, and also it was difficult to use. Air power was restricted because in, in Hue, in, in, as in most of Vietnam during the months of January and February, the, there's a rainy season and the clouds are very low. Every day is misty and gray, and, and so the visibility from aircraft was practically nil. Whenever they had the opportunity, especially later in the battle, to get in an aircraft, uh, they used them where they could. They even dropped napalm in the city. But... Uh, and, and I should add, to devastating effect, because they killed many more civilians died 
inside the city of Huey than combatants. And I want to talk about that in just a moment. Let's take a phone call from John in Lebanon. John, you're on the air. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, you're welcome. I, uh, like so many of us of our generation, I'm, I'm, I've always been fascinated with the, the, the subject. But years ago, I came across the best account is a sweeping account, but the best account of the Vietnam War I've ever read. And I'm curious if you've used any of it as, as a resource uh, for your own book, Mr. Bowden. Uh, the book I'm speaking of is Neil Sheehan's account. Uh, I think it won the Pulitzer Prize. It was an account yeah, of the life of line. John Paul Van, who was a lieutenant yeah. colonel in the United States Army, uh, who served in Vietnam and then ser- and served in the Army, but also then as a civilian. He was eventually killed in, in a helicopter crash, I believe, in Vietnam. The name of the book is A Bright Shining Lie. Hey, thank you very much for your call. What about that, Mark? Yes, uh, Bright and Shining Lie by Neil Sheehan is one of the great books about Vietnam, and it is just as the caller described. I think when you read about the story of John Paul Mann, you understand the level of intelligence and professionalism and effort that went into the American effort to win the war. But what you what you gather from John Paul Van is his growing frustration with the tactics that are being employed in Vietnam and his realization fairly early on that the American effort was not uh, likely to succeed. You talked earlier about, uh, you know, describe the Black Pie Block and then eventually this, the second and third parts of the Battle of Way. Uh, you know, when we're talking about individuals that you introduce in the book, uh, they used a lot of ingenuity. A lot of these troops, the Marines used uh, ingenuity, but one in particular that it seemed to, I don't know if I'd say a turning point in the war, but they kind of found a different way to fight uh, in way. And that is you had someone who found some gas. They would shoot tear gas, gas into uh, where, where the enemy was, follow up with, and there are some weapons I have to admit that uh, I'm not very familiar with. Talk about that. And what they would do is they'd blow open holes in the wall and then the Marines would follow through wearing their gas mask in these holes in the wall. They used a lot of ingenuity. Yeah, I think, you know, the person responsible for the part of the story that you're talking about is Lieutenant Colonel Ernie Cheatham, who's a fascinating character. He's a former NFL football player who played for the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Baltimore Colts, and he was a um, he was the commander of a battalion that was sent into Huey, and he didn't arrive until the third or fourth day. Um, and so I think you know Cheatham stands as a fairly nice counterpoint to General Westmoreland. We've already talked about how General Westmoreland kind of believed he knew everything he needed to know. Um, Cheatham, on the other hand, understood that he did not know how to fight in a city like Huey. And he actually spent the night before he came into the city finding old Marine Corps manuals for how to assault a fortified position. And what he learned was that he needed to, you know, use the heaviest portable weaponry he could find in order to poke holes in the walls of fortified structures and then pump tear gas into them and and essentially to reduce or make the enemy uh, flee before he would send the Marines in. And it was only on, uh, you know, Colonel Cheatham's arrival that the Marines started to really make progress. Mm. <laughs> that, that weapon with the six barrels, what is that? It's called the Antos. Uh, it, it's a Greek word meaning the thing. Uh, it's a really ungainly-looking small tank with six very large recoilless rifles, which look like cannons mounted on it. It was designed by the Army initially as an anti-tank weapon, and it had a lot of defects. One of the problems was that the crew had to climb out of it in order to reload the guns and 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 and, and to add fuel, and that made it very vulnerable in, in fighting in the open field. But the Marines sort of inherited these things, and and they found them extremely useful for urban fighting because those big cannons could blow holes in the walls of even the thickest stone buildings. You had touched on this a little bit earlier, but uh, civilians, there were thousands, and and by the way, we don't know the exact numbers, but there were thousands of civilians killed by the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong and the Marines as well. But let's start with the civilians killed by the North. Uh, What were they looking to do? Well, part of the plan when they took over the city was to round up everyone who worked for or supported the Saigon government. 
and to ostensibly send them to re-education or, in some cases, to execute them on the spot. I think, you know, that plan was carried out, and a lot of civilians were rounded up and executed right at the beginning. And then I think as the it became clear that the citizenry of Hue was not rising up in support of the revolution, it generated a lot of anger and frustration, and I think that led to the point where these purges, you know, got out of control. So the count is... Is as many as you know, thousands, maybe two or three thousand civilians were executed by the um, by the North Vietnamese troops. Then on the other side, uh, the Marines. You know, there were a lot of uh, a lot of civilians who were killed by artillery that uh, we, we had talked about earlier. But there were Marines who actually, even though they performed admirably and uh, courageously, that shot civilians because they didn't know whether they were supporters of the North or they were South Vietnamese who uh, supported the Allies. Talk about that a little bit. Well, yeah, that that was you know one of the real problems in Vietnam. I mean, you're sending young Americans who are 18, 19, 20 years old in the combat in a country populated by Asian people who speak another language, who have completely different uh, uh, culture. And, you know, and, and then, you know, these young Marines are being shot at, their friends are being killed, uh, they're being wounded. And this generates a great deal of fear and anger. And so there were plenty of young Americans who fought in Vietnam who began to see all Vietnamese as potentially a threat. And, uh, and they, you know, they had their pet names for uh, Vietnamese people, derogatory terms. So not all of the men fighting in Hawaii were terribly discriminating when it came to targets. Mm. So who were the heroes of Hawaii? Well, certainly, uh, it depends on which side you're on. Uh, you know, as far as the Vietnamese are concerned, the heroes were the out, outgunned uh, Viet Cong and, and North Vietnamese who who tenaciously hung on to the city for nearly a month and who demonstrated to the world that they were a force to be reckoned with, and they took enormous casualties. And I think in the end, you know, Vietnam won the war. The North Vietnamese won the war. So, you know, you have to, I guess, count them through Vietnamese eyes as heroes. On the American side, uh, you know, there were lots of heroes. I mean, these young Marines who fought so courageously day in and day out, who sacrificed everything in many cases, uh, and, you know, who were, I think, genuinely terrified, uh, but who nevertheless got up every morning and continued to push forward. Um, you know, I'm in awe, frankly, of the, of the courage that they displayed. And I think also, you know, there were South Vietnamese Army troops who fought very bravely in way, particularly inside the Citadel, where I think they did the bulk of the fighting. And, um, you know, they're very unheralded because that's a, obviously a defeated army that disbanded, and it was very difficult for me to find as many of them uh, to interview as I would have liked. What about villains? Oh, the villains, I think, number one would have to be the, the uh, uh, Viet Cong cadre leaders, the commissars who were responsible for executing people. Uh, that was just a deliberate uh, exercise, and it was murderous. Uh, I think that the, you know, on the American side, the the villain would have to be ignorance and arrogance. And, and that was kind of personified by General Westmoreland, who I think was, was responsible for a lot of young Americans being killed. So what are some of the lessons that uh, the United States could learn, did learn, from Hue in 1968? Well, I think the Marine Corps certainly became a lot more efficient at urban fighting. And nowadays, uh, much of the combat that our troops engage in around the world is in cities, just by virtue of the fact that most people in the world now live in cities. I think on a larger level, <clears throat> I think the, the United States you know, might have learned from Vietnam the danger of underestimating uh, people like the Vietnamese, uh, and also the danger of projecting kind of our national politics, which in, in the 1950s and 60s were obsessed with stopping the spread of communism, and projecting this rather simplistic notion of what was going on on a country like Vietnam, which had its own history and its own culture. And the, and the battles that were going on in Vietnam were a lot more 
complicated than a simple struggle of the free world versus communism. You know, we hear often that uh, the Tet Offensive was a military victory for the United States, but it was the beginning of the end for how we lost the war. You don't necessarily agree with that, do you? No, I, I don't think. I mean, for the war as a whole, the goal of the United States military was to protect and preserve uh, the government of South Vietnam and to establish it um, safely, and that failed. Uh, so I don't see how anyone can call the uh, you know the war in Vietnam a military victory. And nor do I think, as many people try to blame uh, press coverage of the war and the public's turning against the war on the ultimate failure. I think that in fact, if you look as I did very closely at the Battle of Hue, the accounts <clears throat> by journalists who were there were far more accurate than the official accounts of what were going on. And I do think that those reports changed American public opinion, but that wasn't because journalists were making up false stories about what was going on there. They were telling the truth. And I think what changed the public's mind about the war was the truth. And those who would point to uh, it being a military victory for the United States in South Vietnam, uh, look at the numbers, which Westmoreland did uh, throughout the war. Uh, as far as the numbers go, you know, we can't get an accurate count, but uh, how many uh, enemy soldiers were killed, uh, South Vietnamese, uh, civilians, and Americans? In the whole war or just in No, Hue? just in Hue. In Hue, there were 250 Americans killed, <clears throat> both Marines and uh, soldiers, Army soldiers. Uh, there were probably three to 4,000 South Vietnamese uh, military killed, and there were estimates of five to 6,000 um, North Vietnamese Army and Viet Cong killed. And I would say there were probably, most estimates are close to 6,000. I think it's probably greater than that civilians were killed. So it's hard to come up with an overall figure. I mean, I estimated 10,000, which is a very, very conservative estimate. And even by that count, the Battle of Hue was the bloodiest battle that was fought in the Vietnam War. The book is Hue 1968. Mark Bowden is the author. Mr. Bowden, thank you very much for being with us today. It's my pleasure, Scott. Mark Bowden will be at Midtown Scholar Bookstore in Harrisburg this Saturday from 4 to 6 p.m. There's a Smart Talk road trip tomorrow at Allenberry Resort, so we invite you to uh, go to our website to RSVP, uh, WITF.org slash RSVP, or excuse me, slash events, and you can RSVP at that. Now, gas prices, they've climbed to well over $2.80 a gallon in central Pennsylvania from around two forty-five just more than a week ago. Blame Hurricane Harvey and the disruption it caused in oil refineries and pipelines. So will the trend continue? Joining us is Patrick DeHaan, Senior Petroleum Analyst with GasBuddy.com. Mr. DeHaan, welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. As I mentioned in the introduction, disruption of the refineries and the pipelines. Uh, how much of a disruption, and explain why that forces gas prices up. Well, it was a major disruption. Uh, on a normal day, the U.S. can produce 10.5 million barrels of gasoline, the nation consumes the bulk majority of that, 9.7 million barrels, and on every single day, then uh, supply outpaces demand. Well, Hurricane Harvey came through, and as a result, in his wake, 25% of the nation's refining capacity went offline. So very quickly, we're talking about shortages uh, between supply and demand, and suddenly supply drops to about 7.7 million barrels per day, a 2 million barrel a day deficit, the nation is really starting to eat through gasoline inventories. And as it turns out, many refineries, especially in the northeast area, uh, those based in Philadelphia, have started to send a significant amount of gasoline down to both Florida and the Gulf. And that has put uh, pressure on supply there in Pennsylvania. Hmm. Uh, and I think I know the answer to this question, but I'll ask it anyway. Is there a direct cause and effect, or did prices rise in speculation of disruption? Well, uh, this time around, in looking at the numbers before and after, uh, I would say that, uh, you know, during Hurricane Katrina, we saw a lot of prices rise in speculation. But this time around, and I think it's because Harvey was so quick to form and then become a major storm, that 
we actually saw prices rise only after we started to see real disruption. Keep in mind, Corpus Christi refineries closed ahead of this storm. So even before landfall, we were talking about a shift in supply. Those refineries had shut down, and very quickly during Harvey, uh, did dozen other refineries have to shut down. So we weren't just talking about uh, prices increases for no reason. This was because prices went offline. So I think in this storm, the market was quite reactive. And in looking at wholesale gas prices, retail outlets didn't really start raising their prices until two to three days after they started to pay those higher prices. So the good news, if there is any good news here, is that uh, supposedly these refineries and the pipelines haven't been damaged. In fact, some are, I don't know if they're up and running yet, but uh, they're on their way to uh, being able to produce uh, gasoline again, correct? That's right. There is a modest recovery. Uh, Some refineries have got back online. Some of them are still dealing with either partial shutdowns or complete shutdowns. The problem in these cases is flooding, the amount of damage that water can do to equipment. Uh, As you probably know, electronics don't get along with water, and that is the primary concern. But certainly some refineries have come back online enough that wholesale gas prices now have started to inch lower, That leads us to believe that while we may see some minor increases in the next few days, we should start seeing prices decrease in the next week or so. Yeah, I actually saw one analyst being uh, quoted yesterday as saying that gas prices should peak this week. Do you agree with that? Oh, without a question. It's going to be a matter of time. Now, keep in mind, every station, you know, is a little bit different. Some may increase uh, from here on out. Some may actually have hit their peak already. I think it's important to realize that not everything happens at once. But I think by mid-next week, uh, stations should be talking about stable prices. And then by later next week, at latest, then we'll start to see prices fall. Our guest during this portion of the program is Patrick DeHaan, a senior petroleum analyst with GasBuddy.com. We know everyone uh, pays for gasoline. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at SmartTalkWITF. You know, you're talking about uh, prices peaking within the next week or so and slowly uh, starting to decrease. One of the questions that that many people always have is, why are gas prices so quick to react on the way up to, uh, you know, a disruption like what happened with Harvey, but are so slow to come down? Why is that? Well, like I said earlier, gas stations did not pass along higher prices for two to three days after they were paying them. So even before you were paying more, they were paying more. It's kind of the way the market works. Gas prices soar when we start to see a physical shutdown. And that's what happened in this case. Wholesale prices started jumping more every day as Harvey was sitting over Houston. Uh, Retail prices then, two to three days later, started to raise, and it was a big jump. Uh, The market always tends to see a bigger jump, and then things tend to ease. But why prices come back down more slowly is because stations are taking that time to recoup losses from when they didn't raise prices immediately on the way up. And I know that's very frustrating as a motorist. You can't see when the station is paying more, but that's one of the things that we can see here. And they didn't pass along those higher costs immediately, and that's why prices go down gradually, because that allows them to kind of make up for when they lost money, when prices spiked. And make no mistake, gas stations absolutely hate when prices do what they did with Harvey, spike so significantly just for that reason. They lose money, and certainly there's many, many complaints. Well, I'm asking some basic questions here because it's obvious that a lot of the motorists throughout this country don't know, don't understand exactly how it works, supply and demand, prices, why they rise, that kind of thing. But what is the average markup or typical markup on a gallon of gasoline? Well, really, uh, it's very little. You're talking about 10 or 15 cents, and that's kind of, that, that's gross. Uh, so if you have credit card fees on top of that, that eats into, you know, one and a half to two percent, and gas stations uh, are usually making maybe five or ten cents at, at most. And again, it comes down to if you use your credit card, that really is contingent on whether or not uh, gas stations make a profit. And at a time like Harvey, the first or second day, stations could be losing 20 to 25 cents, Now, on the flip side, when prices start to go down, that's why retailers are a little bit slower to bring their price down because they have all these losses chalked up 
and uh, they need to stay in business. Mm-hmm. Uh, the price of crude oil remained stable throughout uh, the last week or so uh, during the, the Har- Hurricane Harvey, uh, the, the flooding and this disruption of the pipeline and also the refineries. Uh, that was until yesterday when it hit a three-week high of $48.66 a barrel. That's an almost 3% jump. Uh, why are uh, crude oil prices up and what impact would that have at the pump? Well, you know, it, it's very challenging to lay out why oil prices go up. Initially, during a hurricane, they go down just because refineries are not refining as much crude oil, so inventories tend to build. I think the latest rally is fueled on refineries that are starting to process more of that crude oil. Uh, that's a big deal. It's it's kind of uh, it's kind of a rally in motion here. And also, what's going on is there's some concern over. What's going to happen with North Korea? Uh, the rhetoric continues to increase, and there's more noise geopolitically, and that's right now impacting the price of oil. How does that impact, impact the price of oil? Well, certainly, oil hates when there's uh, instability across the globe, just because uh, there's a lot of unknowns. And when you tend to see countries like North Korea and the U.S. engaging in, in high-level rhetoric, uh, the concern that there is you know, an escalation, and that uh, oil prices could inevitably be drawn in, uh, especially in a situation like this. We've seen it time and time again. So oil prices react very poorly, uh, especially to geopolitical tensions, and that's why some of the caveats when we always talk about gas prices in the future, well, we don't have a crystal eight ball that will tell us what is going on geopolitically, nor do we know if there are going to be major hurricanes. Unfortunately, now we're dealing with both of those. Well, let's talk about uh, the second hurricane on the way, Irma, which is being described as even worse as far as, uh, you know, in the the wind speed and uh, the rainfall, that kind of thing, uh, worse than Harvey. I don't know if you can call it that. Uh, It's it's, it's hard to compare. But uh, what impact will Irma have? Well, really, it's going to destroy demand. Uh, more than it's going to destroy that production. There are no refineries in the state of Florida. There's very little energy infrastructure, and that's the key difference here, is that a hurricane that targets Houston, which is the nation's refining cap- uh, capital of the country, and Florida, where there's no refineries, it's, it's all the difference in, in killing production. And at this point, Irma looks to likely uh, stifle some demand as motorists flee the area, there's going to be weeks after the storm that there is very little demand for the area. So this is, uh, Irma is going to have very little impact on gas prices. Uh, There certainly could be localized impacts in Florida and other affected states, but that's going to be it. When you say that it would have very little impact on prices, if there is less demand, shouldn't prices go down? Well, that's something that could happen in the wake of the storm, but right now there's tremendous demand as motors try to get out of the area. So that is something that can happen. That is something that after the storm could result in gas prices coming back down nationally because there could be a, a lot of demand that's destroyed. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now from, and I haven't seen the latest uh, weather forecast, but most of the models have the storm going over Cuba, making a right toward the United States. But very early on, there were some models that had it going straight, not making that turn, going out into the Gulf, and then maybe even hitting Texas. I don't think they're doing that now. But and I'm asking you to speculate a little bit. If the storm would have gone out into the Gulf, where you know oil is being drilled, uh, would that have had an impact? Well, certainly. Uh, any storm that really ventures into landfall between Corpus Christi and the Mississippi River is going to have an impact on oil and gas prices just because there's so much oil infrastructure. Not only are there hundreds of offshore oil rigs in that area, but on the land there's dozens of refineries. Uh, so, you know, to see an impact, a major impact on gas prices, you'd have to see a, a storm head for that area, really the heart of the Gulf. Hmm. But right now, it doesn't look like that's going to happen. So, you know, even though this could be a catastrophic storm, uh, that is one aspect that may not be impacted. You know, you you talked about demand and supply. Typically, after Labor Day, when there is less demand, prices kind of go down if they're going, if, you know, there isn't something like a Harvey or like a Irma. Will that play into the prices going down at all, that uh, it's after Labor Day and, and people will be driving less? 
Well, it certainly will help refiners balance things out much uh, quicker. Production uh, will increase, and because there's less demand, it may take less time for refineries to catch up uh, and replenish inventories that will be, you know, pretty badly depleted in some of these areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, if you're talking about the summer driving season, you'd be talking about, you know, it, it'd be hard to bounce back during the summer. Had an email here from a listener who said that, uh, you know, we've heard many times over the last couple of years about surpluses of oil and gasoline or reserves that the U.S. has. Mm-hmm. Uh, why hasn't that had an impact on the price rise? Well, first of all, absolutely correct. The U.S. is awash in crude oil. Uh, we are a major surplus of crude oil, and that's partly why crude oil prices remain at $50 and not 100 But unfortunately, in times like these, it has nothing to do with crude oil and everything to do with the fact that that crude oil still has to be refined. And that is what we're limited by. Kind of the kink in the hose, if you could think of it that way, is that you can have all the cheap oil in the world, but if there's only one refinery in the world you could be facing cheap oil and very, very expensive gasoline. So refineries are kind of the hidden equation in this all. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of people believe that there is a direct relationship between the price of oil and gasoline, but during times of disruption, uh, the two can see movements in the opposite direction. Oil prices co- can go down as inventories of oil rise since no one's refining it, and the price of gasoline could go sky high because if there's only one person refining oil into gasoline, there's going to be tremendous demand for that gasoline coming out of the refinery. Patrick DeHaan is a senior petroleum analyst with GasBuddy.com. Thank you very much for being with us today. Oh, thank you for having me. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, as I mentioned, it is a Smart Talk road trip. We will be at Allenberry Resort, and uh, we still have some open seats. If you'd like to come out and see the broadcast, participate in the broadcast, we'll be talking about a number of different topics, including economic development, talking about the, the restoration of uh, Allenberry. Uh, it will be an interesting program. Go to WITF.org slash events, and you can RSVP. Coming up uh, later this week, we're going to be talking about DACA as well. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support for this program comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a valuable and trusted resource for the communities we serve. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, committed to reducing hospital-acquired infections and readmission rates. More information on Pinnacle Health's achievements in patient safety can be found at pinnaclehealth.org quality.